0: Well, one of the big roadblocks for many people who are coming to Jesus in faith, and also a big roadblock for we Christians and our growth in Christ, is the same thing. It is just how very authoritative Jesus' claims are over our lives. This is a God who says, come to me, but count the cost first, because it is costly, A God who says, if you follow me... Truth is what I say it is in my word. You don't get to choose what you believe is true anymore. You got to go with what I say in my word. And right and wrong, he says, is just as I say it is. And the things I call you from, I really expect you to leave. And not only this, but he expects us to live our every moment of our lives in worship of him. Now, this is an authoritative God. This is a God that calls our everything from us. And for some of us, that was a small transition into faith. Some of us came from a background that was fairly Christian in the first place, and it wasn't really a reshuffling of everything that we believe, it was just kind of leaning into what we were taught, and it was rather easy to accept. But you can imagine from somebody who comes from a very different perspective, all of a sudden comes into contact with this Lord who wants to rearrange everything in their life. And so we can get into situations where someone can be coming to Christ from, uh, let's say someone's coming from an LGBTQ background to Christ, and they're not only called to leave a lifestyle and a certain sin behind, uh, but for them it's very much a matter often of identity. They're called to leave a whole identity behind and become Christ's instead. And for many of them, an entire community that has accepted them on the basis of this lifestyle that they're living in, if they were to find out that they've become a Bible-believing Christian, would probably ostracize them. So here's someone who is giving up so much more than many of us can imagine giving up for Christ just to come. Now, that is difficult. or we can find ourselves in situations where a woman who has been first abandoned by her father when she was young and then later abandoned by a husband as well is called by Jesus to do the very last thing she might want to do which is to forgive them both. This is a high calling and it's often very difficult to come to Jesus. Or maybe a businessman comes from a very successful background that has been lived entirely to his own glory for his own wealth and now he is called to give and to be generous and to lift up others and to live modestly. That's a high and difficult calling. And many of us have left things that were hard to leave as well, to follow Jesus or to follow him more faithfully. And the right question to ask, I think, when we're faced with tough decisions like this is, is this God really good and great enough to be worth leaving all of that behind? For someone who says, I have to leave my whole community to follow him and everyone that I hold dear, is he really worth that? For someone who says, I've got to learn to forgive the very last person I want to forgive. Is he worth that? Is this God really that good? That's the core question here. And that's a question that Psalm 33 answers for us. Uh, Psalm 33 does two things for us, and we're going to look at those two things one at a time, one this week and one next week. Uh, The first several verses and the last few verses give us many details about how worship should look when we are gathered, and we'll read some of those in a minute, but we'll focus on that next week. The other thing that Psalm 33 does is it gives us many reasons that our Lord is worthy of all of this worship that he calls from us, worthy of our life, worthy of our singing, worthy of our all. He really is that good to be worthy of everything he calls from us. So we look at Psalm 33 this morning asking God, are you really that great? Are you really that good that you could call from us everything that you do? Here are the words of the psalmist. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all of his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts. He gathers up the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him, for he spoke, and it came to be, and he commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. The people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man from where he sits enthroned. He looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. And by its great might, it cannot rescue. Behold... The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. The words of the Lord. What we have in these words is a call to entrust ourselves fully to the Lord God in worship. And my prayer for what the Spirit might do through these words for all of us here this morning is that He might fill us with the fear of the Lord which as the scriptures teach is the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of so many good things in the Christian life, even perhaps the beginning of faith, as in order to come truly to Jesus, trusting him, we've got to see how great he is how worthy he is of everything he calls us to, how he lives up to his claims. And so I'm praying that the Spirit of God would use these words to just leave us trembling in awe of how great he is, saying, yes, you are indeed worth it. Whether he uses that to call you to faith in Jesus for the very first time, or whether he uses that to deepen your affections for Christ Jesus and call you to greater faith, praying he works powerfully in your heart this morning. Let me go quickly through the structure here and just outline what we're looking at in this psalm, and then we'll spend most of our time this morning in the middle section, a lot of the meat of this psalm. Next week, we'll come back and we'll look at the beginning and the ending of it. Now, the beginning and the ending of this psalm work together in that the first three verses give to us a lot of details about how gathered worship like this right here ought to look. You can see details in there of play skillfully and sing with loud shouts and the kind of things that we ought to be doing when we gather together. And then in the last three verses, we get an example of the worshipers doing that very thing. They're proclaiming with loud shouts, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our shield. So you see the instruction early and the example later on. So that's the first three verses and last three verses mirroring each other in that way. The middle section tells us how worthy the Lord God is of that very kind of worship, enthusiastic, full-hearted worship. That middle section is what we focus on this morning, and it has a structure as well. If you look at verses 4 and 5, you'll probably see in your Bible four lines there, right? Two lines for each verse. And those two verses function as sort of a table of contents for that middle section. We got four points today, four reasons God is worthy of everything that he calls from you. And those are stated one at a time in each of those four lines, first, second, third, and fourth. Then the remaining verses unpack each of those four claims in detail. So in that way, those verses are kind of like a table of contents for the rest of verses 6 through 19. That's where we're going to function this morning. That's where we're going to look this morning. The Lord calls us to do hard things. When we first come to Christ Jesus, often that hard thing is is baptism, right? Uh, Which is frightening for some of us who are afraid of being dunked into water And frightening for others who live in communities that would ostracize them if they are publicly baptized, some coming from a Muslim context, or even some very strictly Catholic context. Your family might disown you if you do that. first scary thing that we're called to is baptism, and that's the first of many difficult and scary things that he calls us to, right? But what we have this morning is four reasons that he is worthy of the difficult and scary things he calls us to. And we see those stated in verses four and five and then elaborated on in the rest of the psalm. So let's look at the four of them. First reason we can know for sure that the Lord is worthy of the worship he calls from you is that he shoots straight with you. He will tell you the truth when he talks to you. This is stated plainly in the first line of verse four, for the word of the Lord is upright. And then it's elaborated on in verses 6 through 9, which tell us that this reliable word he gives us is the same word that made all of creation. Let's look at that part of verse four first. The word of the Lord is upright, it says. That word for upright has this idea of being smooth or uh, if it's something that is fashioned that a craftsman makes, something that they made perfectly to spec, something that is reliable and has the same kind of connotations that we mean when we say something like this person shoots straight, right? This is a person who tells us accurately the truth. And does not do it with mixed motives, right? What they say is how it is, and that's a reliable person with reliable words. I was one time. Uh, Emily and I were selling a house one time, and um, it had a septic tank in it. it was part of the country, that had a lot of septic tanks, and part of the way it works in that part of the country is an inspector comes when you are going to sell the house to make sure the septic tank is good because nobody really knows what's going on under there to make sure the buyer of the house is getting a good septic tank. Well, he came out, he inspected it, and he came back and he said, I got bad news. You need a whole new septic tank. It's going to cost you about 10 grand. Here's a guy who can do it. Oh, you know. So, Well, I knew another guy who was in the whole business of doing that. So I called my friend, Walt, he came over, he got his guys, they dug this massive hole in the yard and looked at the thing. And he calls me out there and he says, Dave, this is nothing like what the inspector said it was going to be. And so we got ourselves in this kind of conundrum where we don't, we don't know what's going on. why did, did the inspector make a mistake or was he being dishonest and trying to get his friend business? We didn't know what was going on. And so Walt just said to me, well, I've, I've got a friend in that department and he shoots straight with me because he knows that I'll shoot straight with him. And so I'll call him and I'll, and I'll figure out what's going on. When you don't know what's going on, somebody who will shoot straight with you is, is valuable. You, you want words that you can rely on and you know are true. And this is something of the idea that verse 4 means when it says the word of the Lord is upright. It is reliable, it is accurate, it is faithful. When you've got all kinds of words around you and you don't know what's going on or what's true or what you can trust in, here is a word that you can look to and you can rely on. One way you know that is unpacked in verses six through nine because it's by his very word and voice that he made all of creation around you and even the ground that you stand, sit, and lay on. He made all of this with his word. And so we know that those words are reliable. We have imagery there of him making the heavens. And we believe in this room that the Lord made every star and every galaxy and everything up in the sky. And it's easy to forget how he did that. How did he do it? He he spoke it all into being. This is a reminder of the power and the accuracy, the trueness of God's word when he speaks. What he says happens and is true. This is why verse eight says, let all the earth fear the Lord. We should all, every inhabitant of the world should stand in awe of him. Why? Because when he spoke, it came to be. When he commanded for the ground to come forth, it stood firm. And even more reliable than that ground that was made and brought up out of the sea through his word is the very words that we can read himself. The same voice that created the stars in the heavens, that brought the mountains up out of the sea, that created the dry land, that created all of the animals, the same voice you hear in Genesis, and God said, let there be, and then there was, you have that voice in your hands. And this is a reminder that you can rely on it. And indeed, this God is worthy of everything that he calls from you. So when he says, here is how to live, he's not just a mean guy in heaven telling you what to do. That's the same voice that made the stars in heaven saying, here is the best way to live. When he calls you to repent of sin, you don't want to. That's the same voice that pulled the mountains out of the sea, calling you to repentance. And friends, you can trust in that voice. You know, for all the, uh, all the partisan stuff going on in politics and how tired we are of all that, you know, there's one government program that everybody is behind Left, right, center. Everybody on Capitol Hill seems to be behind it. I bet everybody in this room loves it. You know what program it is? The national park system. Almost no division over the national parks. And there's a good reason. You go out to Glacier in Montana and you see all of that beauty before you and it just puts you in awe, doesn't it? You go down to the Smokies like I do and some of us do and you see that mist rolling over the hills, there's nobody that's going to vote against that, right? It's beautiful. It's incredible. And what verses six through nine are telling us is that that same voice that fashioned El Capitan out in Yosemite, that dug the Grand Canyon, the same voice that fashioned Glacier, the same voice that did the dunes of Indiana and shaped them all, that same voice you have access to and are probably holding in your very hands right now. This is all a reminder that you can trust his word. When he calls hard things from you, you can trust it. I can think of two voices we hear all the time that are nothing like this. They get it wrong all the time. Meteorologists, going to get an amen, right? And sportscasters, right? (laughs) Right? my uh my favorite is when before the big now football season's coming so we're about to see this happen again before the big game like five of them will sit on a desk and they'll go like down the line oh who do you think's gonna win and they'll put the logo whoever each one of them thinks is gonna win on the screen as if any of them have any idea who is going to win right and half of them are always wrong and never once have i seen them circle back at the end of the game and just like get the two guys that predicted it wrong and be like, well, Roger and Josh, you guys said it was gonna be Washington and it was New York, so go ahead and explain yourselves. You know, like never once are these guys held to task or held accountable. How valuable would it be though? Just consider the value of one sportscaster who got it right every time, never once got it wrong. How valuable would that person's words be once we figured out that they were right every time? How much could they charge for their opinion if we knew they got it right every time, right? Same thing with meteorology, right? And i have a little more respect for them because that's work that really matters and makes a huge difference in the world. But you never know what the weather is going to do. How valuable would it be, though, if there were some like Al Roker or Dylan Dreyer type out there who every time they gave a weather forecast was a hundred percent right. How much money would that person make? How much would the United States Army pay that person to have exclusive rights to their predictions so they could know what's going to go on in battle? When you have a reliable word, that is valuable. Now, it's very rare that the Word of God is going to say much about the weather. Usually, it's going to use the weather to say something else. And it's sure not going to say very much about who's going to win the Colts game. But when it comes to the big questions of life, you have got voices all around you that if you bother to listen to all of them, will confuse the mess out of you. How valuable is it to have a word that you know is straight every time? Friends, the Word of the Lord is upright. And this is one reason that you can know for sure that this God is worthy of your worship. <clears throat> now, I tease a little bit about meteorologists and sportscasters. Let me move to an issue that's a little more delicate and a little more sensitive. Uh, there are more and more people these days who are suffering from gender dysphoria Uh, This is the condition where your body says you are one gender and your heart is telling you something different. And it's very confusing, right? You have a man's body, but you feel like a woman or vice versa. And people going through this are experiencing such torment, I think in large part because the world is throwing all kinds of confusion at them and they don't know what to do. You know, I saw a thread one time on an anonymous message board that was for people like this. Uh, and, And the thread asked the question, If you could open an envelope and pull it out, and it told you your true gender with 100% certainty, but you had to submit to it, would you do it? Would you believe an overwhelming number of the people in that thread said, yes, absolutely. How I would like to be done with this confusion. There were some who had already gone through complicated surgeries and felt landed on the other side and didn't want that, but how many of them are longing for a reliable answer and a reliable truth about who they are? What a treasure that the word of the Lord is upright and reliable. And then in these hard questions that we don't have easy answer to, the Lord says, I have answers. I have answers to the big things right here. Friends, there is better food back at the Father's house. He has good ways to walk in, reliable ways to walk in. For our friends with gender dysphoria, for our friends with other problems, the Lord has good ways to walk in. So there's one way that we can know that He is worthy of everything that He calls from us. He will shoot straight with us. His word is reliable. The second reason you can know that God is worthy of all the worship he calls from you is that he does what he says he will do. This is said first in the second line of verse 4. All his work is done in faithfulness. And then it is unpacked in verses 10 through 12, which talk about his ruling over the nations and the way that he ushered the rise and fall of kingdoms to keep his covenant with Israel and do all of the things that he said he would do to Israel. Now, verses 10 through 12 talk about the Lord bringing the counsel of the nations to nothing, kings having plans and him frustrating those plans. His counsel stands forever. It says his plans to all generations. And so blessed are the ones who have him as his God, the people who he has chosen as a heritage. Uh, the idea here is that The Babylonians, the Persians, uh, Philistia, all of these empires had their plans and had their designs, but the Lord was truly governing the rise and the fall of nations, and he was doing all of this in a way that kept his covenant promises to Israel. He promised them, if you walk in my ways, I will bless you in these ways. If you don't, I will raise up your enemies to come against you. Now, the Babylonians had their plans and had their designs. The Lord raised them up to do his plans, and he frustrated their plans. The Lord's orchestrating all of history there, doing his work in faithfulness, keeping his covenant. We read a story of this this week in our Bible reading plan, the story of David and Goliath, right? Where this giant comes out and taunts Israel, and there's just no way seemingly they could ever defeat him. And little David just walks out there with no armor, with just a sling and a couple of stones, right? And he's fearless. Why is he fearless? Well, because he knows what God's covenant promises are, and trust me, and you'll have victory. And he trusts God, so he says, well, I can see him taunting the Lord God. He's defying the armies of the living God. He's promised that he'll trust us if we go out there in faith, so yeah. I know what to do, right? Trusting in God's promises and God orchestrates that whole scenario. Next thing you know, a stone is sinking into the forehead of that giant in victory because all of God's works are done in faithfulness. He keeps his covenants. He keeps his promises. This is so different from every political leader we've ever had, isn't it? How they go on the campaign trail and make their promises, right? And how excited they get when they keep even one of those promises, right? I've heard people who are fanatics about one political leader or another. I was talking uh, recently to an ardent supporter of President Trump, and his main argument was he's the only one who's done like a third of the stuff that he promised that he would do, right? It's we're just impressed if they keep even half of the promises that they have made. How different would it be if there were just one political leader who kept every single promise that he ever made or she ever made? Would we even know what to do with that kind of faithfulness in leadership? But the Lord says, all of my works are done in faithfulness. The rise and the fall of nations are done in faithfulness to the covenants that I make to my people. Here is a God who keeps every single one of his promises. And that's important because the things that he has promised you are incredible. He has promised you justification in God's courtroom by the blood of Jesus. And you're trusting that Never having been to the heavenly courtroom, never having seen the verdict, not having been present for the crucifixion, believing all of these things on faith. He has promised you resurrection from the dead on the last day. And you're believing this, never having seen someone raising from the dead with your own eyes. So it's very important that this is a God who does all of his works in faithfulness, who keeps all of his promises, never once let Israel down and never once will let us down either. Now, these promises that we believe in, uh, they're, I suppose, good if they're just wishful thinking and nice things that help us to die well and help us to live well. That's why there are people who support you in your faith, even though they don't agree with you, right? Because it's going to usher you to do good things and isn't that nice? It's an entirely different thing, though, when the one making these promises rose from the dead himself and lives and reigns on the throne in heaven. And that's the God that we have, a God who does all his works in faithfulness, who died the very time he promised he would, who rose from the dead right when he promised to and ascended up into heaven right when he planned to. This is a God that keeps his promises And that is the second reason that you can know he is worthy of everything he calls from you, all of your worship and all of your obedience. Let's move on to the third one. The third reason you can know that God is worthy of all of your worship and obedience is his justice, which is unmatched. He is the only one who can offer you true justice. This is said first in the first line of verse 5 and then in verses 13 through 15. The first line of verse 5 says, very simply, he loves righteousness and justice. And the image in 13 through 15 is one that I believe we need to drink in. I'm going to read the whole thing and then we'll go through the details as well. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth, he who fashioned the hearts of them all and observes all of their deeds. So here's a picture of the God who loves justice and loves righteousness, enough that in his throne in heaven, he is seated not on the back of the throne, ignorant of what is going on below him, but on the edge of his throne, looking down upon everything everything that we do. Not just seeing, but keeping active watch on everything that every person does. Now, why would he take an interest in what everyone does? Because he loves righteousness and he loves justice. And that means something for a people who have seen injustice. That means something for a people who are wrestling with anger over injustices that we have seen. I believe we need an image like that in our heads because it helps us to recover from so much of what is making society go almost crazy right now, right? Like our society in a sense has gone and is maybe getting a little more stable, but there was a lot of badness and craziness in the last year and so much of it was over the idea of justice and injustice, right? We had seen things that we said, that is wrong, and we had no way to resolve what we had seen. What's going on here in a bigger sense is, over the last hundred or so years, we as a church have made a, a very big mistake. Uh, we sensed that God's love was more palatable, more warm and squishy and fun to talk about than His justice and judgment are, and so we have preached His love and His love and His love, and we've we've really neglected His justice, His judgment doctrines like hell and eternal judgment and the judgment on the last day and his love for righteousness and justice. You don't, you don't hear that as much. We haven't heard that over the last hundred years or so. Now, we should know that's a bad idea because you never want to present God different from how he is, right? You're not going to call people to Jesus by hiding things about Jesus. We've got to present him as, as he is, trust that everything he is is beautiful, and call people to him. One of the consequences we're seeing of that is that The American imagination now doesn't have any sense of a coming judgment day or a God who looks down from heaven and sees everything we do and will remember it and will call it into account. And so when we see the kind of things that we've seen on YouTube over the last year and a half, when we see wicked laws passed in Congress, when we see politicians do terrible things, and we don't have this reminder that God is there in heaven watching all of the deeds of the children of man, the day will come when he makes it all right. When we lose that sense of justice, we see it and we say, "Mm." That, that is not right, right? And the answer is just rage for so many people. I think that's a big reason why we're seeing so many people hand po- handle poorly the injustices that they have seen over the last year. When we see an injustice, we don't have a good sense of moral order, and we don't have a good sense that God is coming to make it right. It becomes very difficult to handle that well. And so we need this picture, when we watch awful videos of, of some police officers doing terrible things on YouTube, how do you process that without just going into a rage? You remember that God sees it all from heaven, and he will come, and he will make it right. When your friend who is a police officer is mistreated because of the crimes of another police officer, how do you, how do you deal with that tension, right? Right? It's this image right here. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees every last bit of it, and he will come and make it right. Why? Because he loves righteousness, and he loves justice. This is why Christians have no place smashing storefronts, smashing car windows, storming the Capitol when we don't like what is going on. We are a people who wait on a God who will come and will make things right. And so there is no need for us to react in rage when we see things that we know are unjust. That's the third reason you know you can trust God. He is just. The justice the world is offering you is nothing compared to the justice that Jesus Christ is willing to offer. Put your trust in Him, not in the world. Fourth and last reason. We know we can trust him with everything because he delivers those who trust him. This is said first in the second line of verse 5 and later in verses 16 through 19 second line of verse five says that the earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. That word steadfast love is important. And verses 16 through 19 outline many of the ways that he rescues his people. One way His people are not rescued and then the way that his people are rescued. Let's look at 5B first. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord that word steadfast love and your translation may have unfailing love or loving kindness or something like that we have lots of words to translate it because it's a hebrew word that does not have a direct english equivalent and that's unfortunate because it's one of the most important concepts in the old testament Uh, the idea of the word is his covenant keeping love it is that heart towards his people that moved him to make these great promises to Israel and now to the church and binds him to keep the promises that he has made. So this is something like the love of a husband who makes great vows to his wife on his wedding day and then very faithfully keeps him. That faithful love who does what he says he will do and is moved by a love for her to do what he says he will do. That is the faithful, steadfast love, the loving kindness, the unfailing love of our God. It is essentially God's faithfulness to keep his covenant because of his love for his people. So that means then the people who trust in him, he delivers them, right? That's how it works. And so verses 16 through 19 remind us first that horses and military power do not make for good deliverance, right? They're, they're faulty in deliverance. The king isn't saved by his army. The war horse is a false hope for salvation. Okay, so what, what does Israel rely in? Well, that's what verse 18 says. The eye of the Lord is on those who fear him. Because God delivers those who trust in his steadfast love. How would Israel survive the battle? Not through horses. Rarely did they have the better horses or the bigger army or the more powerful swords or bows and arrows. But they did have a God who favored them and loved them. And if they trusted him, he would deliver them. That's essentially the idea there. Now there's an important distinction that we have to make here when we see promises like this, because there were promises God made to the nation of Israel, and then there are enduring promises made to the church, made to us, and and there's quite a difference between them. Israel was promised in their covenant temporary life and flourishing if they would trust in God and follow His ways. For us, the church, and for those in Israel who truly trusted in God, uh, it's not temporary flourishing in life, it's eternal life and flourishing in his coming kingdom. So if they were faithful to the covenant, they would get things like abundant fields, military protection, protection from disease, a plague would go through the world, and if they were being faithful, it would just skip right over them, right? See, that even happened in Exodus with some of those plagues that come down, but... It all had its limit because eventually they would die of something else, right? It's temporary life, temporary promises. The promises to the church are different. If you are faithful to God, you're not promised that you'll be spared of disease or spared of suffering or anything like that. What you're promised instead is that after you die, the Lord will raise you from the dead to live eternally with him forever. So you see what I mean when they were promised temporary life, we are promised eternal life with Jesus. And those who truly trusted in the Messiah to come also have that eternal life with us as well. That's important when we read blessings like this, that he will keep them alive in famine, deliver their soul from death, protect them in war. Those promises don't directly translate to us. That's God keeping promises he made to them. What are the promises he would make to us? Well, not temporary life, but eternal life. Even a soldier who gives his life trusting in Christ, can count on the resurrection and eternal life. Someone who dies of something as terrible as COVID and dies faithfully can count on not temporary life, but eternal life. So what we have is twofold, a promise of eternal life and the heart of a God who still loves to bless us in this life. And so it's certainly worth worth it to ask him of these things. Those are blessings that we have. So just to make a, a concrete example out of what's going on right now with uh, with the coronavirus, with the Delta variant, everything going on. If that were happening in Israel's day, the promise to them would be, "Okay, let's stay faithful to the Lord, and it won't come to our land. Right? He'll protect us if we stay faithful to Him." And hopefully, the people would rally together. They would stay faithful, and it would just skip right over the nation of Israel. Often, they didn't do that, but that was the hope. For us. It doesn't work that way, right? We gathered together. We asked the Lord to protect us. We asked the Lord to protect our city. We did that because his heart is still to bless us, but we don't have guarantees like that, right? So you can be faithful to God all the way to the very end and still suffer and perhaps even die of this thing, but you've got a better promise, eternal life, resurrection from the dead, living in a body that never gets sick again and dwelling there with Jesus forever. So that's the eternal blessing that's given to us in a time like this, where Israel only got a temporary blessing and then something else would get them later on. So what that very simply means for us is ask God for good things now. He loves to give good things to his people. He may answer your prayers. We prayed that of our group of 150 people or so, that God would not give us one life-threatening case. Uh, that's against the odds. You know, the odds would be we would have two, three, four life-threatening cases among our people. God has kept that prayer. He has answered that prayer the whole time. He wasn't obliged to do that, but he chose to do it because we asked. Your leaders asked for that every day throughout that crisis, and he was glad to answer us in that way. Ask him for good things. Hope in him for eternal life and eternal deliverance for that's what he offers to us. That's important because later on we're going to sing from this psalm and we'll sing within the promise he made to Israel of protection during a plague, but we need to remember to translate that to our promises and our covenant. Okay, so there we have four reasons God is worthy of everything that he calls for you. He will shoot straight with you. He keeps his promises and does what he says he will do. He is the only place you can go for true and real justice, and he delivers those who trust in him. Now, when that God says, leave it all and follow me, friends, can you see that that is worth it, If he has placed you under conviction this morning and is calling you to turn from sin and trust in his son Jesus for salvation, Jesus does say count the cost, but I want you to see in this that he is worth it, no matter what the cost is. You count count it, you add it up, and you will find the Lord Jesus to be greater than that cost. And so I call you, by the blood of Jesus that was shed for the forgiveness of your sins, turn from your sin and follow him. In 1958, as the Cold War was getting more and more tense, uh, the USSR had an idea to get themselves ahead on the world stage. Uh, they had a great history, still have a great history of classical music. And one of the greatest composers of all time, Tycho- chi- Temple, how do you pronounce it? Ty-kovsky? Tchaikovsky? Tchaikovsky, man, I looked it up this morning and couldn't say it. Tchaikovsky uh, was right from Russia, many others, Rachmaninoff as well. And they, um, they decided, okay, let's throw the first-ever international Tchaikovsky, Tchaikovsky, goodness, poor English guy over here, competition. <laughs> let's gather pianists from all over the world, the very best pianists in all the world, have them play his pieces. And this is a triple win for the USSR. One... They're celebrating a Russian composer, right? So there's a win. Two, everyone is gathering in Moscow, which keeps Moscow at the center of classical music. So everybody fell for that and came from Moscow. And three, the best pianists were all Russian. So they were just in line to win the thing. And, you know, Russia just wins everywhere. Well, they go through it. It worked out great. The Russian pianists, the Soviet pianists, played incredibly well. And then things took a turn when a 23-year-old from Texas took the bench. His name was Van Cliburn, and he played uh, Tchaikovsky's first uh, piece and Rachmaninoff's third concerto, which is considered by many to be the hardest piece of all to play on the piano. And it wasn't just that he played them with the best technical precision of the day, He played him with a passion and a love that just roused the whole room. And so here is this room full of faithful Soviets just going crazy over this American pianist. And now the judges are in a very tough spot, right? Because everybody knows he's by far the best. But the Soviet premier is not going to be happy if they don't give the award to a Russian, So they batted around for a little bit. What are we going to do? Finally, they just called the Soviet premier and, and said, here's the situation. Can we have your permission to give the award to an American? And the premier only had one question. Is he really that good? And they said, yeah, he's the best. Sometimes it just comes down to that. Is he really that good? And so he said yes. He gave his permission and uh, to much laud and adulation. Uh, The Soviets actually were able to increase their presence in the world because it came off as a gesture of goodwill and of honesty. And uh, even tensions in the Cold War for a time were reduced because of that gesture they made on that day. Sometimes it comes down to that one question. Is he really that good? Friends, I want you to know when Jesus calls from you everything, he is really that good. Let's pray.